The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. What I'm going to open up with, I'm not condoning in any way, but you, if, if you were like me, you probably have suffered at some point in time from a YouTube binge-watching session. I don't know if you've ever struggled with this. Uh, I saw Sarah smile at me. I know what you, you'd be watching cheerleading videos probably from the past or maybe, you know, long ago. I have gotten caught, you know, watching soccer highlights for, you know, a good 15, 30 minutes to an hour. You probably have watched DIY videos or whatever you enjoy watching. But the one set of YouTube videos that, that at this point in my life, I'm able to kind of move past most of them, But the one set of YouTube videos that really get me at this point are the videos of military service members returning home. I don't know if you guys have ever watched these. There's going to be some pictures on the screen. I was sitting at Panera on Friday thinking about the sermon and kind of how it was going to open and was thinking about these these military service members. And I was like, I can't watch any videos right now or I'll just be boohooing in Panera. But I started looking at pictures and, and, you know, tears are starting to come to my eyes. My eyes are getting a little red as I'm looking at all of these pictures. This one especially of this sweet, beautiful girl getting to welcome her father back home. There's a picture of a grandmother caring for her grandson and welcoming him back home. Men and women who have served in the military, they, they come back home and they surprise their kids. They surprise their parents or their grandparents. They surprise their spouse, their friends all of those who are closest to them. Maybe they surprise them at school. Maybe they surprise them at a public event. You know, the way, to, way for a local sports team to get tons of brownie points is to have a you know, military service member come out during a timeout and the crowd's going to go crazy and the kids are going to be crying and the wife is going to be so excited. Maybe this happens more privately at home. I don't know if, if Sammy is in here, but was praying for, for Ryan Holman, one of our uh, members who's overseas right now. I was thinking about him returning home, hopefully, you know, in the next six months or so. And I was thinking, I really want to be there, and I also don't want to be there at all, because I will just be boohooing in the corner, just thinking about these two coming back together. Two things stand out when I think about these military service members returning home. There's this deep level of satisfaction that I've completed this monumental task, something really hard, something really important. I've served in the military, I'm done, I'm finished, and now I'm home. And there's just so much emotions built up with however long it took to serve. And then the second thing that stands out is the deep love and joy that comes with returning to family. Now, I'm sure all of these family members that I've seen that, you know, have been on the screen, they've had arguments, they've not liked each other at times, they've had disagreements. There's been trials, surely, because every family has them. But when you're separated for a time and you return home and you return to the thing that you have been longing for, there's just this joy where you can kind of leave the stuff that happened in the past and be so excited about the joy and the satisfaction that comes with returning to family members. I think about, you know, maybe even if we went around right now, but definitely if you go around Greer at like 9 a.m. on a weekday, you go to Bojangles, you go to Hardee's, you go to Back Home Cafe, you're going to see groups of older men and women gathering. They eat breakfast there, I think, you know, five days a week, maybe seven days a week. 
all the time. And there's going to be a lot of men. They're going to have caps or maybe a shirt that represents the, the, military, the, the part of the military that they served in, their military branch. The running route I take with my kids, there's a flagpole in the front yard with a huge red Marines flag out front. I stopped and I talked with uh, the wife of, of this man for a good while one, one day, and she was just clearly so proud and so uh, even excited about his service to our country 20, 30, I mean even 40 years ago. This, these memories, this satisfaction of being able to serve still is there. These men and women, they're remembering something extremely hard, extremely difficult, that required sacrifice for them, their kids, their friends, and their family. But you know what? It was worth it. Now, obviously, maybe there's times where it feels like it wasn't worth it, but in general, they think this, this was worth it. It was a ton of sacrifice, but it was worth it. So a truth that we can think about is some of the most valuable and satisfying activities that we do in life are the most difficult. The things that ask the most of us, that push us to a degree that we've never been pushed before, when we complete it, is more satisfying in the end. Think about childhood activities like learning an instrument or a sport or school. Maybe when you were a child, you didn't really appreciate them or love them. But when you're an adult and you see, yeah, I, I, I'm able to play the guitar. I'm able to play the drums. I'm able to play something. It's just tremendous about the, uh, the, the time that it took, the sacrifice it took. As we get older, we think about friendships and marriage and parenting, yard work, our job, maybe military service, school, a big project that you have going on. I think about even cleaning the car. When you have a few toddlers, it's, it's difficult, but it is so satisfying to clean a car that's just filled with Cheerios that are everywhere. And it's like, how did the Cheerios get down in there? I can't get anything to get them out. And it requires maneuvering and pulling the seats in and out and taking everything out. But it's so satisfying to take time to do something that is good and worthwhile. But then I think about what's easy. TV shows, scrolling, TikTok. YouTube binge-watching sessions, sending memes, surfing the web. These things are easy, and in the end, they don't really have value. They don't really satisfy. The most valuable and satisfying things in life are worth sacrificing for, are worth facing difficulty for. We're in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, we really see the gospel start to spread in some really amazing ways, especially geographically, but also culturally and ethnically. But then in Acts chapter 12, we, we face this really grave difficulty and hardship that takes place. Two of Jesus' inner three closest confidants face the greatest hostilities in this chapter. So let's read Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. We're going to see these two men, the martyr and the prisoner. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. 
So King Herod is on the scene. This is the grandson of Herod the Great, the man who tried to kill Jesus way back in Matthew chapter 2. He goes around trying to kill babies. And now this is his grandson who is really showing hostility to a good number of Christians. We are about a decade after Jesus' death, maybe the year 42 or 43. And then verse 2 tells us that Herod killed James with a sword. This is James, who is the apostle, one of the original disciples, one of the inner threes, the son of Zebedee. He's the brother of John, and he is the first apostle to be martyred. And very likely, he faced the Roman mode of execution where he would have been decapitated. And then verse 3, the Jews are pleased at the murder of James, most likely because they're not liking the inclusion of the Gentiles, so they're unhappy with him and with the other Christians, so they're encouraging Herod to show this violence, show this hostility. And so Herod decides to arrest Peter, but he's not able to quite kill him yet. We learn in verse 3 that the Feast of Unleavened Bread has started And so this is right after the Passover. A very similar thing takes place in Mark chapter 14 where the Jewish leaders wanted to arrest Jesus and even kill Jesus, but they weren't able to. Mark chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so right around the same time, just a little bit before, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So they're trying to arrest Jesus and kill Jesus before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's going to be so many people in this city. It's just going to be much harder to do. And even stipulation and rules are not going to allow them to do what they want to do. The same thing is taking place here. All Herod's been able to do is arrest Peter because the feast has started. One thing to note throughout these verses as we, as we study them is just noting these little details, time details or little nuances that almost don't even seem that important that just help build the argument that this is true, that this is what actually took place, that Luke has an eyewitness that he is getting this story from. And then verse 4, Herod seized Peter And he puts 16 soldiers, four groups of four, on rotating duty to guard him. I mean, this is mind-blowing. 16 people to guard, you know, little innocent Peter. And so he's waiting, Herod's waiting for the end of the festival to put him on public trial, to take him out before everyone, and then to execute him. Now, what encouragement comes out of these first four verses for me? Thinking about that this is Peter. What do we know about Peter? This is the guy who doubted, who questioned, who denied, and who did not trust Jesus for much of the time that he was directly in communion with Christ. For the three years he was with him, he struggled. Jesus even rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan, at a certain point. We just, we spent, you know, I don't even know, 2016 to what, 2020 or 2021 in the book of Matthew. And we just got to look at Peter over and over and over again. And we said he was a disciple on the way. He was struggling. He was wrestling with many things. But what happened to him? Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension 
totally transformed Peter. The sending of the Spirit helped transform Peter. So kind of our first point of of takeaway from these first four verses is God uses people like Peter who were faithful over time. This is a decade after Jesus. Now, Peter, he's done some radical things. He's preached amazing sermons, Acts chapter 2. But slowly, the Lord is just maturing him over time. He's having a long obedience in the same direction, to use Eugene Peterson's famous book. God uses ordinary and flawed people like Peter, like me, like you, to turn the world upside down for Jesus. God will use us as we behold the beauty of the risen king and we are transformed by Jesus. Let's read uh, verses 5 through 11. We're going to see God's deliverance of Peter. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So during Peter's imprisonment, continuous, earnest Fervent prayer was made for him by the church. And then on potentially Peter's last night of life, maybe Herod's going to take him out and publicly try him and then execute him, the church had no idea that their prayer was having magnificent effect. Their prayer, their earnest concern and desire for Peter, their prayer was, was not centered around thinking that God was under some kind of obligation or that they had to do spectacular works of devotion in order to convince God to act. They earnestly desired the work of God in Peter's life, and they prayed accordingly. The greatest means the church had to help Peter at this time was prayer. So what went down as they prayed, verses 6 through 11? Peter is essentially in maximum security. He's got two soldiers on either side of him. He's chained to both of them. Then at the door to get out, there's two more centuries waiting for him. And then there's an angel of the Lord that appears to do the miraculous. The angel stands next to him. He kind of smacks him awake. It's kind of unique to think, you know, this is the first century where dark, you know, there's not artificial light. The angel of the Lord appears shining. It's the middle of the light. It's amazing that no one wakes up. The angel of the Lord has to wake Peter up. And he essentially says, hurry up, get up, wake up. The chains fall off. The angel tells Peter to get dressed, get his clothes on, and says to follow him. And so Peter follows, verse 9. But it's very interesting, the statement. He had no idea that the things were real. 
He thought he was dreaming. He thought he was having a vision. But he passes the first guard. They pass the second guard. The gate miraculously opens. And then the angel leaves. And he comes to himself and he recognizes what just happened is a miracle. Peter comes to himself and he understands that God has just rescued him from Herod. Again, all throughout, just note these little details that Luke includes to show the truthfulness, to show the background of this story. So kind of the second idea that we pull out of this set of seven verses. Jesus and the gospel will triumph, but the church is not exempt from great trials. Jesus and the gospel will triumph. The angel of the Lord appears to Peter Gets him out of trouble, but the church is not exempt from great trials. James has died. Peter has been arrested. It's interesting to think, why did God allow Peter to be arrested then to just take him out? Why didn't he just let him stay out of prison? Well, in many ways, God is showing his might. God is showing his control. The gospel cannot be hindered by death, by hardship, by imprisonment, by persecution, by anything that we face in this world. The Lord will triumph. The gates of hell cannot prevail. Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, that he is chained, he's in chains and he's suffering for the sake of the gospel, but that the word of God is not bound. So though Paul is in chains, he's about to be killed for his faith. Paul, the one who has been killing Christians 30 years prior, is now going to be killed, but the word of God is not bound. Let's go on and read the last set of verses. We're going to see the church's prayers. Verse 12, when he realized this, when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate. Very interesting experience there. But ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord has brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. This is James, uh, the brother of Jesus, who is now a key leader in the church at Jerusalem. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, verse 18, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So Peter goes to where the church is gathered. Many are praying. Presumably it is still the nighttime and they are, they are laboring. They are praying on behalf of Peter. And Peter knocks. Rhoda, this servant girl, hears Peter's voice but doesn't let him in. She runs back with joy to tell everyone, Peter is here. Peter has come. But what do the people think about Rhoda? The people think Rhoda is crazy, that she has totally lost her mind, that she is wacko, 
but she insists it's him. It's Peter. I think that this, this feels kind of typical uh, of any argument that maybe you had growing up with your, with your siblings or maybe you have to today with your, with your kids or with your spouse or with a friend or a roommate or a parent. We're so out to prove our point to win. We want to we argue and argue to prove our point when in reality, all they needed to do was take five seconds, stand up, go to the door, open the door, and see if Peter's there. But instead, they're over here, and they're just arguing. They're bickering. There's something in us that just loves to, to argue and maybe even win the argument. And they're arguing about it when the evidence is right there before them. All they need to do is go look through the door. So Peter's still knocking. Like, wonder how long he knocked. You know, how many minutes is he just sitting there, just knocking? I, I need to come in. Finally, the door opens. Everyone's mind is blown. Now again, just, just note Luke showing evidence of, of getting this story from an eyewitness, an authentic eyewitness. The description of Peter's even gesture, to be quiet, I don't, I don't know what it would have been in the first century, what the gesture would be to, to quiet down. And then they are surprised and they are excited and he tells them to go tell James. And then when day comes, Herod the soul, and the soldiers it's, I love the phrase, no little disturbance, meaning a great disturbance is taking place. They're up in arms. Where has Peter gone? What has happened? And then very unfortunately, Herod kills the soldiers and he leaves Jerusalem. Kind of our third, our third point to pull out of these verses. God acts through the prayers of his people even to their surprise. One of my favorite parts of this passage is what, what is what is this group of people doing? They are praying. What are they praying for? I think the whole point of them being there to pray is to pray for Peter and to pray for Peter's deliverance. And then when he comes knocking on the door, they're like, no, that's not Peter. That can't be Peter. He's in prison. He can't be here. I know we're praying for him. We're asking the Lord to work. Yeah, 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 that's great. Peter's in prison. He can't be here. And then when Rhoda says, no, it's Peter. Like, I heard his voice through the door. They laugh. They mock. They say that she's out of her mind. But what did God do? God had answered their prayer. Even to their doubt. Even when they didn't think they, that he could. To their total surprise, God has answered their prayers. Now, if we're thinking about all 19 of these verses all together, what are we to take away? We have these little statements that have given you from the different sets of verses. But I think that the main point driving throughout this text, and it'll be on the screen, following and worshiping Jesus is not easy, but it is the most wonderful, valuable, and satisfying thing you will ever do. Maybe you have many desires that have gone unfulfilled. Maybe you are physically suffering. Maybe you feel the Lord is not providing how you want him to. Maybe you're really wanting to be on the mission field. You're really wanting a new job. You're really wanting the job promotion. You're really wanting to get married. You're really wanting, I just want to be united with my spouse on one thing. 
Maybe there's, you want the Lord to answer your prayers for your kids, to save them. Maybe you're, you're desiring to have kids. Maybe you want deliverance from a certain sin that you've just been wrestling with for years and years and years, and it doesn't feel like the Lord is answering. Now, I'm not here to pretend that following Jesus is, is kumbaya and we get all the good feels from following Jesus. The question is, is Christ worth hardship to you? Christ, the one who has paid it all, the one who has offered his life for you and for me. I have a couple quotes that are going to be on the screen from early church fathers who were martyred, who were killed for their faith, much like James, much like the other early apostles. The first one's going to talk about a man named Polycarp. And when the governor insisted, saying, take the oath and I will let you go, revile Christ. All you have to do is deny Christ. All you have to do is say Christ is not worth it. He is not God. He is not the Lord. Polycarp said, for 80 and 6 years have I been his slave. 86 years I've been serving him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And then Polycarp was killed. Another quote from Ignatius. All the pleasures of the world and all the kingdoms of this earth shall profit me nothing. It is better for me to die on behalf of Jesus Christ than to reign over all the ends of the earth. For what shall a man be profited if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Think about the words of Christ there. Him I seek who died for us. Him I desire who rose again for our sake. This is the gain which is laid up for me. Pardon me, brethren. Do not hinder me from living. Do not wish to keep me in a state of death. And while I desire to belong to God, do not give me over to the world. The world does not satisfy. The world will fail us. But Christ is always steadfast. Are you content and satisfied with Christ above all? Is your vision of who God is, his glory, his grandeur, his majesty, is it big enough? Hardship has been promised. Matthew 10 makes it clear all throughout the Gospels, these events in the book of Acts. But what happens to the church in hardship? I think really there, there's, there's two options that happen in hardship. There's two possibilities. The first one, a man t- named Tertullian, another early church father, ha- church father, had this idea that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's not, a, it's not a perfect quotation of exactly what he says, but that's been kind of what he's been referenced to say, that hardship actually propels people towards Christ. That people being killed, being persecuted for their faith is going to push the work of the gospel forward. And that's one possibility. But there's also a second possibility. That when hardship comes, that the enemy uses it to stop or to limit Christians and to stop the spread of the gospel. A missiologist named Justin Long, and there, there was a graph, but I didn't want to put it on here. I just wanted to put his kind of quote summary. It's on the screen. Church growth is not strongly correlated with either governmental or societal persecution. However, Christianity tends loosely 
to change more rapidly, grow, or shrink when governmental restriction is high and stays relatively stable when such pressure is low. When we face trials, when we face hardship, I think we're either going to be tempted to push into our faith, into Jesus, or we're going to pull away. The hardships that come, they could be good in pushing us towards Christ. I think about stories from you guys, you know, think about stories from 2022 that happened with many of you in the room that pushed you towards Christ because of hospitalizations, because of hardships, because of deaths. But it also can be bad. Heavy persecutions and and trials, they can squelch the spread of the gospel, squelch our faith. It can either squelch it or it can multiply it. I'm, uh, I'm listening right now on my drives. Um, I don't know how much you'll, you'll judge me for it, but hopefully you know, you're okay with it. I'm listening to the fifth book of Harry Potter uh, as I drive around. I'm, in, you know, I'm reading so many things so many, you know, all day long that my 10-minute drives, I'm just like, let me have a little bit of just joy and laughter in, in listening to the book. My wife makes fun of me. I listen, I listen to it on one and a half times speed and she's listening to one on one time speed so when I get in the car with her it just feels like it's so slow I can't even like I'm like can we turn this off it just they're they're mumbling so slow but I'm listening to this book and there's a you know the worst character in the Harry Potter books maybe that's arguable Dolores Umbridge is a character in this book and she is really wanting to kind of take control take control of the school And so there's this newspaper that has come out. Uh, It's called The Quibbler. They have posted, they've, uh, you know, made an edition that is going to come out with a lot of information that the, you know, most famous person in the book, Harry Potter, has has given this, um, you know, uh, opportunity to publish what he has to say. And so all of this information is, is out there now for the world to see in a newspaper. And what Umbridge decides to do, she doesn't want people to be able to read what Harry has said. So she makes educational decree, I think like number 27 or something like that. Any student found in possession of the magazine, the Quibbler, will be expelled. And so, hey, if you're seen reading this book, in this magazine newspaper that's got these things that I don't want you to read, I'm going to immediately expel you. But then Harry's little friend, who's been the one orchestrating all of this the whole time, Hermione Granger, is super happy. Because even though the price is high, expulsion, she says that Umbridge has ensured that the quibbler is going to be read by every student. Because the way to get somebody to read something is by saying, don't read this. That's been really even historic with governments who shut down certain books to be read. The way to get a book read is to say, don't read this book. I don't know if that's actually a good method, Reagan, in class. Probably to say, don't read this book. What do you say? Yeah, you could try it tomorrow in class, English class. Don't read this book. It's terrible. You're not going to want to read it. And then maybe, maybe they'll read it. But just thinking about this, that, that could happen with persecution. We're trying to squelch the gospel. But then really, when somebody tries to squelch it, the gospel goes forward. People can really dive in. They can grow and they can invest in the kingdom. But also when trials and hardship and pain and trouble comes, people can push away from the Lord. The evil one may want to use this in our lives, in the lives of our friends, in the lives of our family. We are not 
neutral. Our faith will either be squelched or it will be multiplied by the trials that we face. Hard things happen in our lives. Deaths, pains, job loss, home issues. I had to buy a new HVAC unit yesterday. Car issues, godly desires going unfulfilled, conversion of our neighbors. We want them to come to know the Lord. We want our kids to come to know the Lord. We want our parents to come to know the Lord. We want our coworkers to come to know the Lord. Why is God not answering my prayers? The desire to get married, good gifts for our kids that we want to give them, but we can't afford. Hard things happen. Even think about, you know, it's hard to even... Heed the call that Jesus has given us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's hard to to go and leave everything and to move up to Halifax and seek to be there, to to plant a church, to revitalize a church, to see the gospel go forward. Your call to go to your neighbor and maybe painfully and even awkwardly bring up their need for Jesus and his great love for them, it's not easy, but it is necessary. Necessary. The evil one may use trials to push us away from the Lord, but he also may use bland consistency in order to not prompt us to change. That's what Justin Long's quote is meant to say. That sometimes in the midst of hardship, the church can grow or the church can be squelched. But when things are relatively stable in our lives and the lives of those around us, Maybe we don't really feel like we need to change. We really need to grow. Us in this room, we face minimal pressure compared to our brothers and sisters around the world who are actively being persecuted for their faith. I saw last year in 2022, over 5,000 Nigerians were killed, Christian Nigerians were killed for their faith. We face, you know, some of the greatest difficulties we face is an increasing secular society. And this society does influence the church, but the trial is small relative to other brothers and sisters around the world. And maybe this trial will grow. For us as a church, we try to face this trial head on. We have a strong statement on marriage, gender, sexuality. We preach the exclusivity of Christ. You must believe in Jesus to be born again and to have a relationship with God. We proclaim the importance of all human life even those not yet born. And maybe we face verbal backlash for that. Maybe we'll be called names, but that's about it, at least for right now. A question for you in your life, are you in a season of trials where you're either tempted to push towards Christ or you're tempted to push away from Christ? Or are you in a low-pressure season where you're just kind of coasting along? Just kind of going through the motions, just kind of doing the day by day. Following and worshiping Jesus is not easy. Jim, will you put that quote back on the screen? The the following and worshiping Jesus is not easy. No matter the season you're in, if it's a hard season, and even if it's a good season, it's not easy to follow Christ. But it is the most wonderful, valuable, and satisfying thing. What is your life going to be spent on? I've been praying and praying and praying for myself over these last few weeks. 
to really find a renewed spirit, a renewed energy, only to pursue the things that are of the Lord, that are the things that will glorify the Lord. I've been praying to put to death all the other things that distract me. YouTube, binge-watching sessions, whatever else. Peter is giving his all for Christ. James has given his all for Christ. And they knew it was worth it. Jesus, the one who gave himself, even while we were still yet sinners, has showed us, showed us so great a love. And these men knew it. The church, this church here in Acts 12, is giving their all for Christ. Kind of the question is, what am I doing? What is Aaron doing? What are you doing? I pray as a church that we would have earnest prayers. That we would have time where we are earnest before the Lord. Starting March 1, we have a group of 20 plus people who are going to do 90 days through the Bible. I pray as a church we would prioritize the intake of God's word. Both at a small level where we'd memorize little bits of scripture. More and more and more over time. But where we'd also intake God's word even at a very fast pace at 90 days. You're welcome to join. The sign up is, is still online if you're thinking about it. The gospel says we are redeemed because of Christ. We have a relationship with the eternal God of the universe. Your life is not mundane or ordinary. Your trials are not too great. Our creator loves and cares for you. Jesus saves you from your sin. He offers freedom and he offers hope. So we're not here to... I'm not here to guilt you into doing more or to living a more radical life. In, in many ways, we want to just have a long obedience in the same direction. But I pray that your heart has been changed by Christ and that, that the love of Christ is the thing that motivates us. Think about Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The most valuable and satisfying thing in life, knowing, serving, and worshiping the Lord Jesus, it is going to cost you. And it will cost you your life. We are to turn from our sin and to give our lives to Christ. But it is worth it. I'm going to invite the, the band to, to go ahead and, and come back up. That which is most valuable, that which is most worthwhile to live for, is worth sacrificing everything for. I think about soldiers who give their lives. I think about James and Peter. Nothing is sweeter than the love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to get to remember that right now as we take of the Lord's Supper. We get to remember that Jesus' blood was shed for us on a cross. And that Jesus' body was broken for us on the same cross. That our sins have been nailed to the tree, and that we have been redeemed by the blood 
of Jesus. In just a minute, I'm going to pray. And then I'll give us, a, I'll read through kind of our liturgy for the Lord's Supper. And then when you come to partake, if you'll go to the outsides uh, of your rows and come down, you can make a line along the wall and come and partake. Uh, Jim and, and Zach will be up here, two of our elders, to distribute. If you'll hold on partaking, and then we will partake all together. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you offer us hope and joy in Christ. Living for you, we recognize, is a great cost. It cost James his life. It cost Peter his life. It cost Paul his life. It will cost us our lives, and yet it is so worth it. Jesus, because you have redeemed us. You have taken us out of darkness and brought us into marvelous light. You have offered us true freedom. Lord, I pray that we would hope and find joy in you. And I pray that the Spirit would work mightily in us to have our greatest joy be found in the Lord Jesus. We love you. Amen.